why are you here? Oh, to support the writers. It's automation and the gig economy are ruining great work for everybody. And, and the writers are just the, one of the newest um, labor forces to be subject to this kind of um, race to the bottom. This is a very significant development because really what it's talking about is that working class people are allowed to have proper livable spaces to be in and that it's the council's job and the state government's job to actually protect that livability. Belafonte was acquainted with that history, that if you were white and you believed in civil rights, you were either considered to be a communist or a communist sympathizer. The radical libertarians are looking at these kind of workaday, kind of banal engineering fixes for capitalism and saying, what if we took that and made that into like a model for society as such? What if we made the zone rather than the nation, rather than the empire? Conditions in the mills were just absolutely awful. And that's one of the things Mother Jones picked up on really quickly. And she would actually have kids who had lost limbs or fingers come up on stage with her to present their injury to the whole crowd and just remind them like, this is who you're fighting for. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, workers Mike host Ken and Ed hit the streets of Chicago talking to striking writers and their supporters. Next, we jump to Australia where the Solidarity Breakfast Podcast reports on saving the MacIvor Reserve. Then to California where Work Week Radio explores Harry Belafonte's work on labor and race and how that connects to today. On The Dig, Quinn Slobodian on crack-up capitalism, market radicals, and the dream of a world without democracy. In our final segment, Philadelphia-based Labor John podcast remembers Mother Jones and the March of the Mill Children. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Workers' Mic right here on 720 WGN. My name is Ken Edwards. I'm with the Midwest Coalition of Labor. Sitting to my left is Ed Maher with the International Union of Operating Engineers. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Ken. What's happening? My my voice is kind of messed up because we were... Uh, at the picket, um, which we're going to be talking. The Writers Guild the writers, strike, yeah. Yep, the Writers Guild strike, the Writers Guild picket. Let's start with a, a clip from the actual picket captains for the writers. Let's get down to it, all right? Why are you guys on strike? Uh, fair wages, basically. Uh, a lot of things being written for free. Lots of rooms being understaffed. Showrunners running way too many jobs. Just trying to keep our heads above water. And a lot of people with families... People need to pay rent. People need to get food. They're not making a wage, and the studios are making a bunch of money and not giving us our fair amount. And I'll tell you, you know, you usually think about strikes, right? You see strikes all the time in Chicago, construction, construction. This is a white-collar strike, right? You don't see a lot of white-collar strikes. You think of writers, especially somebody that wrote Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> yeah. you think that you're, you know, a super rich guy living in a, you know, giant house or whatever, and that's not the case. No, it's not the case, and particularly particularly with young writers trying to trying to uh, get a start in this business, it is it is very very hard. And do they think that they're going to starve you out? 
Yes. <laughs> they do. Yes. They, 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 they're already starving. <laughs> you know, they can't starve. They can't, yeah, yeah. as you know, you can't starve a starved person. Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. We'll be here because we're hungry. We want, we, or we want to be, we want fair. We want, that's what we want. We only yeah. want to be in the conversation. We want to be good collaborators like we want to be. And we want to be paid a fair living wage. All right, so that was a cool interview, and that was you, Ken, yep. with uh, Writers Guild Strike Captains Michael Gillio and Brett Naveau. And I uh, interviewed two guys at once, B.J. Levy from the Musicians Union and John Coley Jr. from the Teamsters. I interviewed them together. Let's hear what they had to say. All right, so let me ask you guys a question. Why are you here? Well, to support the writers, it's automation and the gig economy are ruining great work for everybody, and, and the writers are just one of the newest um, labor forces to be subject to this kind of um, this race to the bottom. Exactly. That's exactly right. Musicians have been dealing with it for years, and we have photographers. We have all kinds of people that are suffering from automation in the gig economy. I don't know if anybody ha- actually has the answer, but what do we do about this? We march around. I mean, we, we strike when the, when the contract comes up. We demand that human beings get the labor that's due to them. And not only that, but we rehumanize this work. There are people behind this work. Check us out on YouTube if you missed any of the show. Look up Workers Mike on YouTube. Uh, Thank you to the Da Vinci Street Productions. And we will be back with you next week. Right here on 720 WGN. Uh, You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're now going to move to the issue of local amenities, green spaces in your suburbs. But this particular discussion is about... Uh, Friends of MacGyver Reserve, which is in uh, the west. It's in Yarraville. And uh, I had a chance to chat with Miles Parnell-Gilbert, who's been working with others for over 18 months to get it onto the agenda that uh, uh, putting a uh, basketball stadium on an unstructured piece of uh, long-term green space in an overpopulated suburb isn't the answer that the council thinks it is, and perhaps even the state government. Anyway, I had a chat with um, Miles, and this is what he had to say. Let's start off with uh, what are the issues that are surrounding the MacIver Reserve for community members? Yeah, I think the main issues are the fact that, um, you know, our, our action, the campaign has been around the misuse of precious green space within Maribyrnong. Um, and that's really where it all started a year ago. You know, the council um, brought out a, a master plan to look at developing the park, and most people were expecting, you know, to see improvements in, you know, parkland facilities, greening the space, improving the situation for existing tenants. Uh, and what we ended up seeing was basically an execution of a plan to build um, and large indoor stadium on uh, what we refer to as the unstructured recreational space of MacGyver Reserve. So uh, that's the issue really is, um, you know, we're concerned about the continued loss of green space in Maribyrnong. Um, the climate emergency is pretty evident to everybody by this stage. Um, and it's all connected, whether it's, you know, pollution from trucks, poor air quality, um, you know, noise, um, heat sink um, problems, um, lack of trees, lack of green space. It's all part of the same problem. Um, so MacGyver Reserve is just one of many parklands, many green spaces. Um, and, um, you know, if you look at it as a, like a death by a thousand cuts, this is yet another 
one and a bit hectares of green space, potential tree space, um, that's going to be lost to development that should really occur somewhere else. You know, I can say yesterday, um, the, you know, originally the CFMEU backed Mackay Reserve and um, the protection of the green space. Yesterday, a uh, representative from the uh, MUA went to the um, uh, building industry group meeting, um, which is a weekly meeting of all of the uh, building industry unions, which includes the, uh, you know, the uh, electrical trades, plumbing, um, manufacturing. Um, There's also representatives of the Trades Hall Council. Um, and the motion that they put forward yesterday um, was that the unions of the building industry support Friends of MacGyver Reserve and their fight opposing Maribyrnong City Council's decision to construct a stadium on MacGyver Reserve. The union supports protection of this unstructured public space and that has now been accepted and endorsed. So, um, you know, the CEO of Maribyrnong said in one meeting that she'd uh, not heard from the unions uh, on the issue. Um, I think if... Uh, if um, local council and state government are not hearing this message from the unions, um, then they're not listening hard enough. This is a very significant development because really what it's talking about is that working class people are, are allowed to have um, proper livable spaces to be in and that it's the council's job and the state government's job to actually protect that livability. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek. The recent passing of singer, actor, and political activist and organizer, Harry Belafonte, is important in U.S. history in the struggle against segregation, racism, and war. Belafonte worked and collaborated with the ILWU. We talked with Clarence Thomas, retired ILWU Local 10, past Secretary-Treasurer, about the legacy of Harry Belafonte and the relevance today. My first meeting with Belafonte was on April 5th, 2003. He was the keynote speaker at the Stop the War at Stop the War in Iraq, Stop the War on Us. After his speech and interview was over, Henry and I spoke with him. We welcomed him to the Bay Area, congratulated him on his speech, which was well received by those in attendance. And then we immediately expressed his admiration for Harry Bridges and the ILWU. And he was well acquainted with his history. Specifically, the U.S. government attempt to have Bridges jailed and deported for being a red. There was this anti-communist witch hunt in the United States. Most people don't realize that the ILWU and the left-wing unions at that time actually had an organized campaign against segregation. And the Marine Cooks and Stewards, which was a left-wing union on the West Coast, actually forced the integration of ships. They were all white by telling the ship owners that they wouldn't sail unless there were black sailors on those ships. So I think when people think about why was there an anti-communist witch hunt, one of the reasons was the left-wing unions like the ILWU were saying, we're going to actually fight racism on the job. And Belafonte was acquainted with that history. And you're right, Steve. I think that it would be, we would be remiss if we did not point out that there was a time in this country, believe it or not, that if 
you were white and you believed in civil rights, you were either considered to be a communist or a communist sympathizer. One of the things I'd like to mention in this book that we publish about Cleophus Williams, this is his manuscript. One of the things that Cleophus talks about is that there were people who, some people were allowed a credential to work and other people were screened. And so sometimes there was no rhyme or reason for this. So it created a division amongst the rank and file. How is it that he was able to get clearance and I wasn't? You follow what I'm saying? And so the employers, because I think that one of the things that I've come to understand, this is why I published the Cleopas's book, is that African-Americans in particular, who were not lefties as such, but who were militant trade unionists and who understood the importance of the anti-discrimination, anti-racism, the democratic and militant traditions of the ILWU, they supported those things. And they were also targeted too, just like someone who might have been a lefty or who might have been from Eastern Europe and was looked upon as being an alien who was bringing in Marxist Leninist philosophies to the trade union movement and all the rest of that. But those individuals were also targeted as well. And I think that, as a matter of fact, I was told, this through oral discussion, that people were asked questions when they were being interviewed by the government in some instances. They were asking questions such as, have you ever had a conversation with anyone who had who had liberal views about race mixing. They were asking questions like that. Have you ever been to an event where, you know, where blacks and whites were mixing socially? That kind of and excuse me, but that, that, that was the degree in which, you know, and then, and like right now in Florida, Ron DeSantis is gonna be running for president. And so I can't think of the young black woman and she spoke at biden's inauguration and so she received quite a bit of acclaim and admiration for her speech do you know that her speech has been outlawed in florida we seem to be history seems to be repeating itself right now Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is my interview with returning guest Quinn Slobodian. Last time he was here, we discussed his book, Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, which told the history of neoliberalism as a process of building supranational institutions to protect capitalism from democracy. You may be familiar with that episode since a huge number of you downloaded it. If you have not heard it yet, I will post a link in the show notes. Today, we're discussing Quinn's new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. 
This book is about radical libertarians, including anarcho-capitalists like Murray Rothbard, who envision a world where the nation-state is broken into smaller units, a world of micropolities where capital mobility ensures that forms of governance by private property and contract outcompete popular sovereignty or socialism. But this isn't just a book about ideas, though it is certainly a book about ideas in part. It's also a book about how our world already looks a lot more like that anarcho-capitalist fever dream than we might have imagined. You write, quote, The world of nations is riddled with zones. What, generally speaking, is a zone? And how does it challenge the ways that we typically think about the nation-state and its sovereignty? Well, technically speaking, zones are these jurisdictions within national territory that are ring-fenced, you know, delimited in terms of size, and inside of their borders, they have a different set of laws and regulations than what exists outside. The last 40 plus years, these have been used by often developing countries as a way to incentivize foreign investors to come into the country who might you know, be otherwise dubious about making an investment in you know, whether it's Indonesia, India, um, South Africa, Botswana. If they're told, listen, Within this space, we will make sure that licensing happens quickly, the taxes are light, that you'll be able to have full foreign ownership, et cetera. It's a way to make mobile capital more confident about where it's putting its money. The zone has a very distinct kind of biography or kind of history, which many other people have tracked in detail and upon whose work I, I rely in my own book there. And it has a few different genesis points. One of them is the foreign trade zone, which is an American invention. Dara Orenstein, an American studies professor, has written a great book about the American foreign trade zones called Out of Stock, which she pitches as a history of the warehouse in American capitalism. And these were set up in the 1930s during the New Deal as basically warehouses, but places usually adjacent to harbors that were considered to be outside of American customs territory. So the advantage of that is you could bring things in there in pieces, for example, and assemble them and then bring them inside of the United States and not have to pay, let's say, tariffs or customs on each individual component. You just have to pay then customs on the finished product. They were also very useful because technically speaking, you weren't allowed to do certain kinds of refining of imported oil on American territory, so you could do them instead in these foreign trade zones. So for almost 100 years, the US, and there are you know hundreds and hundreds of these things across the US, some of them no bigger than a warehouse, places that when you step into them, you're technically out of the kind of tax territory of the United States. They're, they're very much used for car assembly and things like that nowadays. The tendency, I think, has been to look at this as just kind of a, a bit of a freak or an abnormality of the way that global capitalism is operating. But my play in the book is to say two things that one, actually, this is kind of the essence of the way that global capitalism is being organized in the last 40 years or so. These are the places with the highest intensity of manufacturing, the highest intensity of investment, the highest intensity of extraction. And if you look at them in another way of financial activity as well, and furthermore, they're, they're acting as kind of inspirations for other kinds of political imagination. So the, the radical libertarians, the anarcho-capitalists that we started 
our conversation with are looking at these kind of workaday kind of banal engineering fixes for capitalism and saying, what if we took that and made that into like a model for society as such? What if we made the zone rather than the nation, rather than the empire, the thing that was how we organized human life? Well, Quinn Slobodian, thank you very much. Thank you for the questions. Hello, and welcome to the Labor John Podcast, where we actually call our mothers, and not just on Mother's Day, about the working class history of Philadelphia and the surrounding world. I'm Sam James, and I am joined by... I am Gabriel Christie. Are we going to learn about Mother Jones today? We are going to learn about Mother Jones and the March of the Mill Children. In early June of 1903, there was the general textile strike in Philly, where... About 100,000 textile workers in the city went on strike for the 55-hour week. So they had been currently working the 60-hour week. They wanted to take that down to 55. But Mother Jones arrived in the city later in June and, as usual, started agitating and giving speeches and very quickly picked up on the fact that there were a huge amount of very young children working in these textile mills. So according to the 1900 census, approximately one-sixth of all children under the age of 16 worked in mills and factories, and conditions in the mills were just absolutely awful. And that's one of the things Mother Jones picked up on really quickly, and she would actually have kids like come up on stage or have kids who had lost limbs or fingers come up on stage with her to present their injury to the whole crowd and just remind them, like, this is who you're fighting for. So she wanted to organize an army of workers to march up to New York City to raise awareness about the plight of the mill children. So she figured that because she had connections in every industrial town between Philly and New York, that they could go from, like, city to city and get fed and housed as they moved up and that she would also do this to raise funds for the strike fund because the textile union in Philly had grown exponentially during the strike. So they needed money. Uh, and so she was going to go and raise funds along the way and send yeah. them all back. So July 7th, 1903 started with speeches at the Kensington labor lyceum at second and Cambria streets. They were making final preparations and at, and, doing more agitation uh, to get ready to march to New York City. Okay. And they also declared that they might call upon President Roosevelt, who was currently summering at his home in Oyster Bay. Ooh. Failing that, they said that they would just hold mass meetings at Madison Square Garden to raise funds. So around noon <laughs> on July 7th, 150 men and 50 boys and girls, all from the textile workers, uh, marched out of the Lyceum, moving up to Frankfurt Avenue. And then they were, so at the head of the procession, they had all of their union banners and all of their picket signs and everything that they had been making over the past month or so of striking. And then behind them, there was a an apparently somewhat hastily assembled union fife and drum corps that provided music to the marchers. And so they were making preparations to actually go up to New York the next day or to start the actual march the next day. 
So between Bristol and Trenton, they again stopped at every little town. They'd hold a rally. Mother Jones would give speeches and would call for both support for the textile workers strike and then also just call for an end to child labor. So they finally made Trenton by the 11th, where they had another mass meeting and there was a lot of food and money that got donated in Trenton. And this was the point of no return. So they knew that they needed to make it or they needed enough provisions to make it all the way to New York from this point on, or else they would have to go back to Philly. Yeah. But they figured out that they could make it to New York. So they made it, they marched out of Trenton that evening, made Princeton by the 12th, New Brunswick by the 13th. And they were also making, they were actually getting a lot of monetary donations and sending money back to the union. So they also sent word ahead to see if President Roosevelt would meet with them. And he said he might meet Mother Jones herself, but he wouldn't meet with the entire army. And, but they still formed up into a column and marched through Newark, New Jersey with Mother Jones at the head of the procession. So on the 23rd, they finally made it to New York City and requested permission for a parade. And then initially that got denied, but they like kept pressing. And then finally, by the evening of the 23rd, they got permission to have a parade through the city. So 29th of July... Mother Jones and a delegation of five rep or five children made it out to Sagamore Hill, which was Roosevelt's estate. Okay. And they there was like some actual belief that they might be able to push him on stuff and might be able to enact some child labor laws, in part because he was an honorary member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. Uh, okay. So they thought they could like use that as leverage. Okay. The, but when they got there, Roosevelt's secretary dismissed Jones and the delegation saying that the president would not be meeting with them. He failed to mention that the president was taking his own children out for an evening of recreation. So he couldn't bother to hear about other children. Working 10-hour days. What? Because he wow. was out playing with his kids. Wow. Yeah. God damn. Yeah. That's a, hell, that's a hell of a classic, classist remark there, Gabe. Yep. They did compromise with her, though, and said that she should write a letter to the president <laughs> and let him know what he'd ought to do about the plight of the mill children. And here's a souvenir of White House and the Statue yep. of Liberty... Cigarette lighter for the kids. Yep. So now they were faced with another problem, which was that the army, the labor squadron, was starting to get restless. So she stayed in New York, kept like raising funds. I wasn't able to find the exact end date as to when she actually left New York, but it seems that she spent most of the rest of the summer continuing to agitate to help raise funds and try and get people to recognize that, hey, maybe eight-year-olds shouldn't be in factories. While the March of the Mill Children itself did not end child labor, it did set the groundwork for the National Child Labor Committee, which then went on to agitate for an end to child labor. 
And it also did raise a lot of money for the strike. So it helped them to keep the fight up. No. Both them play us out. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a very small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week or so on more than 100 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. These are shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. And we've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produced the show, and our social media guru is Harold Phillips. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.